And that was some local music from His Name is Alive with Introduction off of their new release um, called Detrola. Before that was music from ESG with Dance. And before that, Bootsy Collins was with Where Are the Children? And it's now 4.30, which means it's time for the Living Writers Show. Um, and thanks so much for listening. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and I'm going to turn it over to the Living Writers Show now. Good afternoon. You're listening to, to the Living Writers Show on WCVN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. My guest today is entrepreneur and food and business writer Ari Weinzweig, founder in 1982 of Zingerman's Delicatessen, which um, has been named in the 2004 Food and Wine magazine as one of the top 25 food markets in the world. Starting in 1992, when the company decided they needed to expand, they decided not to expand out of town and make Zingerman's Delicatessens ubiquitous along highways near you, but rather to expand the business in innovative ways and create the Zingerman's community of businesses. In 2003, they were the Inc. magazine pick for coolest small company in America in 2004. Actually, I believe it was 2003 or 2004, one of those years, the, the, the sales topped 21 million and there are 450 employees. So from a small corner deli to a large local business, um, Ari Weinzweig is one of the founding partners. And on top of all that, he is a prolific writer of business pieces in magazines widely distributed and food pieces in magazines also widely distributed, newsletters distributed at the place, um, at Zingerman's, and also two books, Zingerman's Guide to Giving Great Service, which has recently come out in, I believe, Korean, Chinese, and a whole host of other languages, as well as the Houghton Mifflin published Guide to Good Eating. Welcome. It's great to have you. It's really nice to be here. Thanks. So um, let's Talk, let, let's start, as we always do, with um, some of your own words from the book. If you wouldn't mind reading a couple of excerpts for us from The Guide to Good Eating, that'll get us started well. Sure. This is uh, a little sidebar that's called You Really Can Taste the Difference, which sort of sums up, I guess, the core of my belief about good food. Uh, it starts like this. All too often, retailers offer only average ingredients in the misheld view that their customers aren't perceptive enough to identify more flavorful, if more expensive, options. I take the opposite approach. I'm an adamant advocate of the belief that seemingly average eaters can and will be able to tell the difference. Tasting isn't rocket science. I'll always remember the time a guy was wandering through the deli, looking at the tiny glass flasks of specially aged, traditionally made, authentic balsamic vinegars. Because of their small size and high prices, we keep them under lock and key. I could tell he was mystified, wondering what kind of food was so special that it had to be kept locked up. Sensing a challenge, I offered him a taste. No, he insisted, it'd be lost on me. I'm just waiting for my sandwich. Unwilling to give up, I insisted. He walked away for a minute, then came back with his wife and teenage son in tow. 
The four of us sat down to sample a quartet of different balsamics, ranging from six years up to one that had been aged for more than a century. When we got to the 100-year-old traditional balsamic, their eyes lit up, which happens whenever anyone tastes this vinegar for the first time. It even elicited a wow from the teenage son. Dad smiled and shook his head. You were right. That's amazing. I don't know if he ever came back to buy balsamic, but I felt good regardless. What matters most to me is he got a taste. He got a hint of just how wonderful great vinegar can be. So to make a long story short, yes, absolutely, 100% guaranteed, you can tell the difference. And then this is just a little, couple paragraphs from the chapter on balsamic vinegar. Unlike almost every other food in this book, fine chocolate is the other exception, balsamic vinegar has never, ever been poor people's food. Rather, it was revered, crafted, and cared for primarily by and for nobility. Who else could have afforded to invest the necessary time and space in a vinegar that at best was sipped only on special occasions and was usually started with the idea that it would outlive the man who made it? With that in mind, it's interesting to note that the vinegar was almost always passed down not to the oldest son, but to the youngest daughter, who was thought most likely to carry the vinegar the furthest into the family future for which it was made. Up until about the early 1980s, you couldn't even buy balsamic vinegar in Modena. It was there. It just wasn't for sale. Vinegar was meant for the family, for gift-giving, for inheriting, but certainly not for selling. Lynn Rosetto Casper, who has been studying the foods of the area for many years, remembers coming to Modena in the 1980s and finding it almost impossible to locate a bottle for sale on the street. The good news for those of us who aren't descended from ducal families in Emilia-Romagna is that the drought has ended. Thank you. Thanks very much. That's Ari Weinzweig reading from his book, The Guide to Good Eating, The Zingerman's Guide to Good Eating, out published by Houghton Mifflin Press. Now, let's sort of talk about beginnings. Um, You're from Chicago. You grew up eating Kraft macaroni and cheese, among other um, sort of when folks say American food, this is what they think kinds of things. Um, And you've recently been inducted into the James Beard House, which is a high honor in food circles. Um, This year, the class of 2006 also includes the Kitchen Sisters. Give us a little bit of background. How did you get from Chicago and food is what you eat to um, sh- to Ann Arbor and food is what you live and uh, spread the good word about? Well, I came to school here, actually, like a lot of people, and basically I'm still here a million years later. But uh, I came up here and I studied Russian history, uh, particular interest in the anarchists, uh, I think other than just eating food, I didn't particularly have any particular passion for it or interest in it. And uh, after I graduated from U of M with my history degree, I pretty much just knew I didn't want to go home. And I was able to calculate that I would have to get a job in order to not do that. And uh, one of my roommates was waiting tables at uh, a restaurant here in town that was called Mods, which longtime Ann Arborites will remember. And uh, that's where I went to work. And the only job they had open was washing dishes, and I took it. And uh, I feel really, honestly, incredibly lucky because I happened into some great people and into a line of work that I really love. Uh, Paul Saginaw, who's been my partner in this from the beginning, was the general manager. Uh, Frank Carolla, who's one of our partners at the Bakehouse, was a line cook. And Maggie Bayless, who's one of our partners in Zing Train, which is our little training and consulting business, was a waitress. So, you know, to be still connected and partners and like each other, whatever it is now, 30 years later, is a pretty cool thing. 
Now, you started the business Zingerman's Deli in uh, 1982, and the Zingerman's community of businesses currently includes the deli, which is still in its original location, Zing Train, which is a, a business consulting training arm of the business, a mail order business, the creamery, which makes cheeses, gelato, etc., the bakehouse, all the breads, cookies, cakes, the road show, which is a sort of takeout trailer in front of the Roadhouse, which is the restaurant um, that opened last year, I believe it was, the coffee company that does its own roasting, and then catering and events. Um, That's about one business every 18 months since 1992 when you decided to expand. Um, And on top of that, your writing. How does the writing figure in? Well, you know, in truth, I didn't, like I didn't start out to be in food, I didn't start out to write. Um, And, you know, I certainly wrote my share of history papers, uh, but you know, mostly it was sort of the agonizing uh, one sentence at a time, throw paper against the wall, get frustrated kind of thing. And uh, early on when we opened, you know, it, it was pretty clear from the beginning, I mean, that we have always taken the approach that, you know, our job is to help the customers understand why the food is good and what's special about it. And we hired a couple different people at various times to write a little newsletter for us. And, you know, although they did a good job, I'm sure, I mean, over the years I sort of got increasingly frustrated that they weren't saying it the way I wanted it to come out. And uh, at some point I just took it on myself and started to, to write it. And, uh, you know, over the years I would get a lot of good feedback from people. And, I don't know, I sort of ignored some of that feedback. But uh, eventually people that I really respected, like Corby Cummer, who writes for The Atlantic, uh, monthly and has written a lot about slow food in recent years and stuff really encouraged me and supported me and kept pushing me to do a book and I finally relented and and did. And your first book, what's become the Zingerman's Guide to Good Eating, was first a guide to good vinegar and a guide to oil. Yeah, the, I, I did a couple little books. Uh, one of my my uh, passions in history were, was the uh, Russian anarchists, and uh, so I really liked the old idea of doing pamphlets, which is how people used to propagandize uh, or spread their beliefs in, in, you know, centuries past. And and, uh, so I like the idea of little books. And and because my belief is really strongly that, you know, good food really is for everybody and that anybody that's interested can learn to distinguish between a great whatever piece of goat cheese and a mediocre one, uh, that following that sort of anarchist, you know, pamphlet approach would work. So we did these little books, uh, one on olive oil, as you mentioned, and one on vinegar. And actually, Corby edited those two. And those got rolled into the bigger book now, uh, Zingerman's Guide to Good Eating. Which is distributed throughout the U.S. It is, and uh, probably other places, too. Yes. Now, it's just the the Guide to good, um, great, Giving Great Service that's in multiple languages. Is that It is. Russian, Russian is the other one that just came out in, which was very exciting for all the people who tell me that I don't use my degree. I was very excited to be able to have it come out in Russian, and I actually sent a copy to Bill Rosenberg, who's still here, who was a great professor then and I'm sure is now, just to say thanks for his support over the years. Do you find it's different to write about food versus um, some of the marketing writing that you do and some of the business writing that you do? You've written about um, bottom line. Um, bottom line, there's a there's a catchword. Tell me what it is. Bottom line change. Bottom line change. You've written about um, open book finance. You've written about service, mm-hmm. um, and then writing about olive oil. Do, do you find that there's a difference in the way you think about those endeavors? You know, not not really. I don't think so. It's a good question. But I I guess all of it really is just me trying to get what's in my head and in my heart. And in the case of food, I guess on my tongue or in my sensory perception, you know, out 
on paper in a way that other people can understand it. And, um, you know, in both cases, I guess I'm coming out of already having content to, I have a lot to say and, you know, how well I say it, I don't know, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not sort of like thinking about, well, what should I write about? It's more like, okay, here's something that I really believe in. Here's something I'm really excited about. Here's something I'm really passionate about. How do I get it out there in a way that somebody else might have some sense of, of what I'm thinking or feeling? Now, we're sitting here in the studio, um, and uh, there's a gingerbread cake in front of me and some pepper from Tasmania where you just were, um, some goat cheese, some argyle cheese, some cream cheese, and some oolong tea, some iron goddess of mercy tea. Um, and all of it smells just absolutely fabulous, and it's hard not to um, share it with our listeners and not to eat it, not to just stop the show right now and eat. I'm wondering how you translate what... I don't even think about because I'm sitting here smelling it into something that um, works in somebody's house, you know, elsewhere. Somebody who's reading your book and is not in the deli or not sitting here with this gingerbread cake wafting over. Um, is there is there something that you think about as a challenge in translating this one sense to a quite different one? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I, th- I think it's, you know, it's it's really just sort of slowing my brain down and, and backing it up to the beginning. And I guess the mindset of be- or beginner's mind really is what it's about. And, um, you know, I, I think that because I don't know, because I am who I am, but I because I grew up with Kraft macaroni and cheese and fish sticks and, and all that stuff. I mean, I don't have any sort of sense of like you're a better person because you eat better food. I mean, everybody gets to eat whatever they want and, you know, learning to eat what I think is more enjoyable and more flavorful food has made my life a lot more enjoyable. Um, I think it contributes positively to agriculture and to traditional uh, artisan production in this country and all over the world. So I, I feel really good about it. I'm just sort of backing up my mind to be able to explain to people who aren't sitting here with us smelling it or tasting it, you know, what it is that's going on, whether that's something going on in my mouth or my nose or in my on my tongue uh, or the finish of it. And these are things like with wine that I think everybody just takes for granted, even if you don't drink a lot of wine or know a lot about wine. You know, it's got all this cachet and lingo and language that goes with it, which is great. But I think really it's all applicable to goat cheese or to bread or chocolate or anything else. Now, if I say I like my Kraft macaroni and cheese, um, how do you, I mean, you, you you read the story about the vinegar. You really can taste the difference. Um, but you had to show those folks. You had to say, here's a taste mm-hmm. of this and here's a taste of this. Um, how are you, are you hoping that the word just gets spread by that kind of person and the people who pick up your cookbook or rather your guide to good eating, which has recipes in it, um, will... Um, sort of taken on faith that this is where they should go? Or are they already foodies? Are you? I think there's some of both. I mean, I think you have to, it's like anything in life. I mean, if you're not interested in it, then it's not going to get you excited. I mean, so there's plenty of things that other people are excited about that don't thrill me, uh, which is fine. I think that's what makes the world interesting and diversity is a great thing. Um, you know, I, I, I think that it's a lot just through talking to people and letting them taste and taking the time to really explain to them what the difference is because I think most of the mass market food that's out there is is sold under the, you know, high quality label and, you know, that's up to other people to sell what they want to sell. But, I mean, when you talk about macaroni and cheese and like what we do at the Roadhouse where we use, uh, it's one of actually the only uh, non-American ingredients that we really use is the Martelli family's uh, macaroni from Tuscany and they're actually in the written up 
up in the book, and I've been to visit them two or three, I guess four times actually. And you know, it's just amazing macaroni. And can you taste the difference? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I will always remember. Uh, it's probably four or five years ago sitting with, there was actually a, a Zing Train uh, seminar attendee who, you know, was sort of going, oh, I'm not in the food business. So I'm never going to be able to taste the difference. And he kept, you know, insisting he wasn't going to be able to taste it. And Ma- uh, Maggie was there. And, and this her, is the training branch, the yeah, management consulting branch. Yeah, we do little seminars upstairs in the deli. And uh, he, I don't know where he'd come from. Anyway, he, he kept insisting he wasn't going to be able to taste it. And Maggie, whose kids are very picky eaters, but who eat a lot of macaroni and cheese, finally said, Bill, my eight-year-old can tell the difference. He won't eat anything else. So, I mean, it's, it, is really, it is really discernible. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. You're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. That's 88.3. My guest today is Ari Weinzweig, author of Zingerman's Guide to Good Eating and Zingerman's Guide to Giving Great Service. We'll be right back. Let those December winds bellow and blow I'm as warm as a July tomato There's peaches on the shelf, potatoes in the bin Supper's ready, everybody come on in Taste a little of the summer Taste a little of the summer You can taste a little of the summer My grandma put it all in jars We're back. You're tuned to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Ari Weinzweig. We're talking about his books, Zingerman's Guide to Good Eating and Zingerman's Guide to Giving Great Service, as well as um, just the whole Zingerman's community of businesses and what it is to write and live and breathe food. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how you mentioned that when you came here to the University of Michigan and studied Russian history, that you were interested particularly in the anarchists and in um, their pamphleting, getting the word out was was part of what brought you to writing and writing books, um, or at least the, uh, that was the way the the books first took their form was as pamphlets and getting the word out what you believe in about food. Um, so there's a real mission behind your approach to food and to food writing. And I want to talk a little bit about the continuum of folks who are have sort of food missions. In 1971, Francis Moore LePay came out mm-hmm. with Diet for a Small Planet and um, came up with the revolutionary notion that it wasn't disaster, but human practices rather that um, created world hunger and, mm-hmm. and came up with some strategies and approaches for thinking about that. Also in 1971, Alice Waters out in Berkeley, California, started the restaurant Chez Panisse, and she was a real and continues to be a real proponent of the notion that local is important. So mm-hmm. buy um, sound and sustainable agriculture includes buying local and organic ingredients. And this, th- these sorts of folks heralded the beginnings of what has come to be known in part as the slow food movement. Mm-hmm. Um, in an article in Gourmet News in February 2004, um, you were quoted as saying, we're not selling anything people need or that no one else has. It's in the experience. So mm-hmm. part of what you're about is this experience. Anybody can taste the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, good food is for everybody, mm-hmm. although there are also some sort of economic kinds of issues mm-hmm. that we can talk about. But I wonder, in this 
moment now in in 2006 when we've got mail order businesses and cell phones and um, e-commerce and we're in Michigan where if you eat locally you're going to eat rutabagas and turnips for a lot of the year. Um, How do you see uh, Zingerman's and your work as a food writer fitting into this global food sort of evolution? Well, you know, the local... The importance of, of local stuff is is a big deal to us. Um, actually, we just had our uh, one of our early planning meetings for this summer. Uh, we're going to do the second summer of doing a little farmers market out at the Roadhouse parking lot on Thursday evenings. Is one way that we're going to you know continue hopefully to support local growers is by giving them that space to use. And uh, and then certainly we buy a lot you know in the summer months. Uh, because it is Michigan, uh, where we have a relatively short season, we buy a lot from local growers here during that time, and you know it is it is really a big deal. I, I uh, you mentioned slow food. I ran a, I got asked to run a panel last year in uh, Turin, or I guess the year before last, on local foods, and I really you know I struggled a little bit you know internally just because obviously you know when we're selling balsamic vinegar, I mean it's not a local product, it's not meant to be a local product. Uh, some things we do are local. I mean, we're, we we have built now a little local creamery that now has, means that we have a local cheese, which to me is a really exciting thing. You know, bringing bread and pastry uh, to this area and being able to bake locally is great. Uh, so all that stuff's pretty cool. But at the same time, I mean, you know, long pepper comes from Indo- from Bali. It doesn't come from uh, and long pepper is in the gingerbread cake that's yes. sitting here on the table. Yes, and it's a really amazing spice, and, and I love it, but it's never going to come from here. Coffee doesn't come from here. Tea doesn't come from here. So I sort of struggled with, you know, how do you balance this? And actually, one of the, the people who was on the panel uh, is, a, is a grower in uh, Central California, and he presented sort of his view on local, and what he said is that his belief that local to, means to him is that it means you have a relationship with the user. And to me, that really rang true because we have relationships with our customers. It's a big piece of even though we do mail order, I mean, we really talk to our mail order customers on the phone or through mail through email. Uh, we we know our producers. Uh, we talk to them. I visit a lot of them. A lot of the other people who work with us visit them. And so we really have this relationship sort of that carries all the way through, so that we can know the person who made you know who, where the long pepper is being produced, all the way through to using it to teaching people about it here, and then having dialogue with people about it you know around the country that have ordered it from us, which is a pretty cool thing. And so when, I mean, your reach is now like, for example, I was recently in San Francisco and one of your cheeses was in the Ferry Building, which is a big market down mm-hmm. on the, um, which cheese that was? I think that they're getting the Lincoln Log, the Lincoln actually, Log, which yes. is one of the aged uh, goat cheeses that we make. And the cheese that I have in front of me now is some cream cheese and some argyle cheese and some goat cheese. Yeah. Are these... Are these the ones you're calling local, or what? Well, these are, we make here, so they're about as local as they get. They're uh, probably two and a half miles from where you and I are sitting right now. From and cows with names. From cows with names. The, the, we don't actually have animals, so we buy milk. The cow's milk comes from uh, Calder Dairy, and then the goat milk comes from Michigan Goat Co-op. Um, so we get deliveries every week. And but the cheese is made here. I mean, John, you can people can go out there and go to the shop and watch. I mean, it's a lot of work, uh, as is all agricultural, you know, or artisan food activity. It's never glamorous, really. It's a lot of painstaking, uh, slow, steady hand labor, but it really makes amazing stuff. And, you know, I think the thing to me is that people get a chance to taste what a really well-made, hand-ladled, which is the old way of doing it, goat cheese, tastes like three or four days old. 
as opposed to something that's you know been uh, extruded into plastic, sealed up, you know, sent through the the supermarket distribution chain. And you know, it's it's not an evil or, or inherently bad thing, but there is a radical difference in the flavor, and I think people don't really realize that. So we're talking about the, oh, lots of different levels of um, access to. Well, let me back up. Um, the food that you're talking about, it tastes better. So there's a there's an aesthetic level that we're sort of considering. Um, then there's kind of a political or social democratic community kind of a level that we're we're considering. Um, you know where this food comes from, who made it, um, the cows had names, and um, it you know and all of this sort of contributes to the experience. That's part of the the Zingerman's um, experience. There was a recent article in the New York Times that w- talked about um, Trader Joe's, which is actually owned by by um, a branch of Albertsons, the big mm-hmm. grocery store chain. And um, there's been some sort of, um, in consumption circles, or people who are thinking about consumption and um, sort of supersize concerns, that kind of thing in, in food, are, are talking about ever sophisticate, ever more sophisticated ways to consume. Um, so how do you factor, because a lot of what you do is business. There's marketing involved mm-hmm. in sales, and sales, and you're teaching um in Zing Train, which is part of the consulting business, you're teaching better ways to sell, better ways to merchandise. How do you balance your politics and the aesthetic experience um, with your thinking about business? You are at, at heart a businessman. You've been a very successful entrepreneur for now almost 30 years. I mean, I guess, you know, the business piece, you know, my, my upbringing is basically the business is a bad thing and, and it really never dawned on me. You could go into business as a career option. I mean, I, you know, and I, I think that I was wrong, uh, and I, I really learned a lot both from Paul, uh, who taught me early on. And Paul Saganai, your yeah, partner in and the fountain. From another partner. Paul, which is uh, Paul Hawken, who wrote Growing a Business and who started Smith and Hawken. Smith and, Hawken. Uh, and and you know what both of them, what I learned from both of them and then from others along the way is really that business is just a vehicle and it's neither good nor bad, uh, and that you can, it's really what you do with it and. Uh, you know, for us, it's about making something special happen in, in a way that contributes back to the community, in a way that contributes to the lives of the people that work in our organization, in a way that contributes to the lives of the people who are producing the food and, to, and then to the customers who get to eat it. And, I mean, that, that's really what it's about. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think I've ever gotten up in the morning going, make money. It's If it is that way, it's more like make money or you're going to be out of business. Um, <laughs> you know, s- selling, I, I think, you know, my sort of original perception of selling is, is – of this negative, you know, used car salesman sort of mentality. But, you know, when you're when you're selling stuff that's really great and that you believe in, it's really not selling in that sense at all. It's just about helping people understand what's out there and letting them make informed choices. And, you know, not everybody's going to want to buy a handmade goat cheese. It costs more. It's a lot more work. Um, but I just want them to know that the option is there, and then they're going to make the decision for themselves in a way that, you know, hopefully enhances their life in whatever direction they go. Now, you've written about these practices in your business work and then written about the um, the food itself in the, in the food writing, but you've also been written about quite a lot. Um, Bo Burlingame, who's the author of Small Giants, Companies That Choose to Be Great Instead of Big, um, was recently in town, and Zingerman's, along with Ani DeFranco's record label and um, Anchor Steam mm-hmm. Beer, I believe, from yeah. out in California, um, are, are profiled as new ways to do business. Yeah. Um, and you have one of the things that keeps coming up is that you have many MBAs 
who have become um, partners within the Zingerman's communities of business, communities of business, rather, and um, have left other kinds of business to do this because of the, the way it feels, the community that is Zingerman's, the, the thing that's there. How does that translate into... Um, the community here in Ann Arbor, because you're very committed to staying in Ann Arbor, although you have a global reach with the books and with the mail order um, and the, with the articles, you're committed to staying here, here in Ann Arbor and something that isn't written about much. Um, and, and in fact, Paul Saginaw, your founding partner, has said we don't like to talk about it very much, is the community service and the nonprofit end of Singerman's. Would you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, uh, in terms of staying local, I, you know, Bo's book, which I, I really think he did a nice job with i mean his it really started with the article that he wrote about us in ink magazine which you mentioned during the intros and you know he was here i don't know it's probably five years ago that he started the research to do that and then as you said wrote it i guess three years ago january and uh you know our our vision that as you mentioned we wrote in the early 90s um you know, decided not to go national, uh, but rather to stay here locally and to stay in this community and not to replicate the deli, but to provide growth opportunity for people in the organization by opening other Zingerman's businesses where people could become managing partners and own part of those businesses. And uh, so he sort of kept thinking about this model and then decided that maybe there were other organizations out there who had taken not necessarily the same path forward, but similarly alternative paths, I guess, for growth. And that's really what the book is about. So Ani DeFranco, you mentioned, and uh, Union Square Cafe and uh, that restaurant group in New York City and Anchor Steam Brewery uh, are all in there. And, you know, for us, it's it's not a right or wrong. I mean, I don't begrudge organizations that choose to go national or go public or whatever. I mean, more power to them. It's, it's their vision. Um, but for us, you know, we feel really connected to the community. You know, we feel like there's a very special town, a uh, very special audience. Uh, people are really interested in what we do. We know the customers here. We know there's people who work with us. We get to taste the food. And I just think you lose a lot of that when you start to go, you know, all over the country. So for us, it's really a great thing to be able to stay here and, and stay connected to the community. Um, in terms of giving, uh, you know, you never give enough. I mean, there's so many people in need and arts programs in need. And uh, Paul has done enormous amounts of work, you know, to help uh, coordinate our giving and to, to make a really, you know, hopefully positive contribution in our community. And we're going to keep working at it. And are the the way y'all think about giving is that's one of the aspect of the business that you don't write about very often. I mean, at least I can't find it. And in, in all of the things I've come through for this interview, I haven't been able to find any writing about that. Why do you not write about that? Uh, I don't know that I wouldn't write about it. You know, it's something that he really coordinates more than me. And so, you know, it's I, I, I haven't written about it, but every month I'm thinking about what I'm going to write about next. And now maybe I'll write about that. And I, I actually was just talking with uh, Lynn uh, Yates, who uh, works with Paul in coordinating all that, and Maggie from Zingtrain yesterday about, you know, looking at ways to do, uh, provide some sort of training for potential nonprofits around the country or for for-profit businesses who, like us, might be really interested in doing a better job of channeling their funds into good things. And so I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, it's not really by anything other than it's sort of Paul's passion, and I've left it in his uh, area to work on. But, you know, he, he's really pushed the envelope in terms of getting Food Gathers started in the mid-'80s. Which is uh, the not Food Gathers is the nonprofit. Yeah, Food Gathers is the biggest thing, you know, that we've contributed to. And, and the idea was to help bring a, a positive experience. I mentioned, you mentioned economic issues. And, you know, it's obvious. I mean, not everybody can afford to eat the kind of food that we're working with. And so this was a way to try to get food 
to people in need and get a positive experience to people in need in Washtenaw County, of whom, unfortunately, there are a lot. And uh, and so really the work was done out of the deli in uh, the mid-'80s to create it, and it's a credit to everybody in the community and to the people who did the original work and to Paul who had the idea to do this. And, um, you know, it's grown fantastically uh, well over the years, and there's a full-time paid staff now and hundreds of volunteers and uh, this year the last couple of years the big project has been been to build and open the Delana Center on uh, Huron which is the new shelter and then to build a community kitchen within that which is allowing uh, us to get a lot more food to a lot more people and cook it in more uh, economical ways which is great and uh, and then also in there has been set up a training program for homeless folks who can learn restaurant skills and then hopefully graduate from that program and go out and get jobs and we had the first graduates this summer which is great well, we're going to pause right there for a minute and take a short break. It's the top of the hour. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is food and business writer Ari Weinsweig and also entrepreneur and founder, founding partner of Zingerman's Community of Businesses. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My guest today is Ari Weinzweig. My name is Ashley David. Thanks for tuning in. So we're talking about all kinds of stuff, business, food, aesthetics, politics. Um, let's talk about music. Okay. <laughs> this last track was Pieta Brown, um, yeah. daughter of Greg Brown, who was the... Um, author and singer of the track that preceded it and before that we heard a little we started the show with a little bit of nick drake um these are your picks with the exception of greg brown which i threw in because canned goods we can't go without it i like greg um one of your passions is food and and i'm wondering um you gave me a long list of music i could i could throw in there for our breaks um is music one of another passion and do they go together and are they? Is it like food and wine complement each other? Or is there music and food? I, I, you know, I guess I, I mean I don't know. I haven't studied it, but I definitely listen to a lot of music, and I, I have found over the years that people who are into food in the way that we are are also into music, and people that are into music generally are really interested in food. They can't always afford it, <laughs> the kind of musicians that I listen to. But um, but certainly it's, it's a lot of crossover. And, and talking about the community, I mean, one of the the um, places that we try to support a lot is the ARC, and I've, one of the reasons that I think is a really special community is because of the ARC, uh, which people don't realize often is a nonprofit and a community-based organization. And we get the opportunity to see some fan, or listen to some fantastic music, music, and see some fantastic musicians in a really great venue uh, that other people in other parts of the country don't get to see. So for me, it's a pretty cool thing. So. Let's talk a little bit about what you like to read then. Um, it, with all of the things we've talked about so far, um, I can't imagine that you have a second to go, to even to go 
see music um, because um, the business is huge. The writing that you do, you're prolific. The books, that, aside from what you publish into the public realm, you publish a newsletter for employees. You publish a newsletter for the deli. You pu- there, there's a lot of words you're generating. Um, do you read? Do, are, are there are there particular books and authors who inform your own work as a writer? Uh, tons. I, I I never have enough time to read, but one good thing about traveling a lot is that I'm stuck on planes a lot, and then I sort of like it because I get to read a lot. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of people, uh, you know, in every venue, food, writing, leadership stuff. Uh, in terms of writing, Brenda Euland is probably my favorite uh, writer about writing, and I learned a a ton from her book, which uh, I think is called If You Really Want to Write, and uh, it was written, I think, in the 1930s, and it's just, I've probably read it five times, but she helped me enormously uh, in terms of leadership stuff. Uh, Max Dupree, who was the head of Herman Miller Company, which is an amazing design firm here in Michigan, uh, wrote some great books. Uh, Peter Drucker, uh, Robert Greenleaf wrote Servant Leadership uh, a number of years ago, which has really inspired uh, us to do a lot of work along the lines of what he's talked about. And then uh, actually just lately I've been reading a lot in the last year by Harriet Arno who's a very interesting writer who was from Kentucky. We just did a big Kentucky dinner at the Roadhouse the other night, so it's kind of on my mind. But she wrote The Dollmaker is probably the best-known book because it got made into a film with Jane Fonda, and it's about a family that moved from Kentucky up to this area, which many people did in the mid-20th century. But she also wrote another book uh, called Hunter's Horn, which totally blew me away because it's about half in Kentucky dialect uh, and really great. And some, Appalachian? Or? Yeah, and just some histories. She wrote two histories of Kentucky, Tennessee, which at one time were one territory. And although they're not about food, I mean, there's obviously a lot of food woven in there. And uh, she was great. And it just turns out that I, I didn't know, but I mean, she ended up uh, moving up to this area and lived in Ann Arbor for many years. And I, when I found that out, and she died, uh, I think, in 1986. So I felt bad i mean that she had been here while i was here and i really didn't know who she was but she was a great writer and um are you writing a lot now for another book or i i understand you're writing a lot about um pimento cheese for example i, I mean is there a book that's coming out um on the heels of the guide to good eating well i'm, I'm always writing as you said i i People make fun of me because some of the keys on my computer are starting to have no le- visible off. letters <laughs> anymore. <laughs> the S is no longer an S. The, uh, the, the N has completely disappeared. But um, No, no, no. <laughs> I, I'm always always writing uh, a lot, and then you know things get woven in. So I've been writing a lot about country ham, which has become one of my big passions, uh, is to really help to teach people in this country about American country ham because it's got kind of – this weird sort of like loyal following from people from the South who grew up with it. But other than that, people don't know about it. And you're talking salt cured country. Hands. Yeah. But country, you know, Prosciutto de Parma, which I did write about in this book, you know, which everybody has, you know, sort of high respect and, you know, has these amazing connotations of quality in the food world that it, it's really just Parma country ham. I mean, they're, they're the same and, you know, each area of Europe and then each area of the ham belt in the U S which would be Tennessee, Virginia, Northern Georgia, uh, Kentucky, uh, into Missouri and stuff are, you know, have great local hams, which can also be eaten like prosciutto de Parma uncooked. And uh, I really want to help people understand that because you don't need to spend a day cooking a whole country ham. You can buy two ounces of this really amazing year old ham and enjoy it, you know, really just simply and quickly for dinner. And um, you 
are working. So will that go into a new book? Yes. Sorry, that was your question. I didn't really answer it. Uh, I am I am working on the next book. Uh, I I think that it will probably be or similar to this, but sort of around travels to uh, visit many of the people who. Uh, make the food and with the country ham where I was leading was that I went down this summer to visit Nancy Newsom who makes an amazing country ham. You mentioned the James Beard house. Uh, he was a big fan of her father's country ham. She's third generation. Um, and I went down to Princeton, Kentucky, which is, I don't know, three and a half hours southwest of Louisville and uh, to visit her. And, you know, those are the kind of things that I feel really fortunate to be able to have woven into my work so that you know it's it's an eight-hour drive but she's an amazing woman as far as i know the only woman in the country that's commercially curing country hams she only makes about 1300 a year uh totally traditional fantastic flavor fantastic woman uh, who writes poetry actually and uh so i think the book will sort of evolve around uh chapters you know visiting various producers and about the people who make the food and where they make it and the settings in which they do it and some of those foods are featured now in the Roadhouse. So, for example, your grits is from a mill outside of Columbia, South Carolina. Yep, and uh, so they're from Anson Mills. Uh, Glenn Roberts is the sort of crazy in a good way guy behind that. Uh, he does amazing. I mean, I've been down there, so that would be another chapter. Uh, again, for me, I didn't grow up with grits. I mean, I grew up in the north, so it's completely foreign product or foreign food. A grit me. is a grit is a grit. Well, I, I didn't even know what they were, I don't think. I mean, until I started to learn about American food and, and then spent literally five years, you know, going around and tasting grits and talking to people like you who grew up in the South and who, you know, grew up with grits and getting their sort of story of it. And then finally met uh, Glenn through John T. Edge, who is another great uh, food writer. Uh, who works in Oxford, Mississippi, uh, with Southern Foodways Alliance, and he turned me on to Glenn's uh, corn products. And Glenn works with all these old corn varietals. So the grits at the Roadhouse you mentioned is a 19th century variety that's called Carolina Gourd Seed that he's revived. He grows organically. Uh, the field ripen the corn, field dry it, which is the old way to allow the corn stalks just to fall over in the field, and you only mill them when you're ready to use the corn. And then he leaves the germ in, which is again the old way. Uh, Everybody takes that out now because with the germ or the oil left in, it's a perishable product, and people have become used to uh, having grits as a as a shelf stable item. But with the oil in there and using these old heirloom corn varieties, it's just really great, and uh, it's amazing how much difference there is. Now, a lot of your focus, a lot of the focus I've I've heard um, you talk about in in preparing for this interview um, has. How's you going south? So the ham, the grits, mm-hmm. um, pimento cheese. Yeah. Um, what about, you know, aside from the turnips and, yep. and rutabagas, what have we got going up here in Michigan? Well, wild rice is really also one of my passions, and that's in this book. And actually, we're getting, we get it from Minnesota, from a couple different lakes there. Um, but like the grits, I mean, although everybody's heard of wild rice, hardly anybody in my uh, eating experience has really had it in the real form. I mean, 90 something percent of what's sold as wild rice isn't wild anymore. Uh, just like with the grits, the more I did homework on it, the more I started to realize that the name wild rice had been sort of co-opted by industry. And so actually the chapter in the book, uh, is called, is titled really wild, wild rice because the 5% that's left, that still grows as it should in the wild, that's hand harvested, uh, as it should be taste, radically different. I mean, they're night and day. And I started, you know, mentally started my approach to it thinking there's probably a place for both, just like, you know, wild blueberries and cultivated blueberries are both good. They're different. 
but having cooked and eaten them, I mean, I, the, the, the cultivated stuff really doesn't, it just doesn't taste good at all to me. And uh, really wild, wild rice, which people haven't had the chance to eat for the most part, is fabulous. So doing stuff like that and then also uh, working with, uh, you know, local fish, uh, certainly coming out of the Midwest. And, you know, we use American Spoon Preserves from up north where they're using local fruit. And then, again, you know, working with the local growers is a great thing. Well, thank you. We are about out of time today. Um, but I want to thank you very much for joining us today. My guest has been Ari Weinzweig, author of Zingerman's Guide to Good Eating and Zingerman's Guide to Giving Great Service, numerous articles in food and business magazines here, there, and everywhere, and all those uh, newsletters and things that are hanging at the Zingerman's businesses. Thank you for coming down today. Thank you. I'd also like to thank you for tuning in, and I'd like to thank our engineer, Chaz Barrett, for doing a good job, as always. Next week, poet, essayist, story writer, teacher extraordinaire Keith Taylor will be my guest. Please stay tuned to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. The Sports Report is next. Days like today, is there, puts it out in front, shot at them by Turnbull, he scores! Travis Turnbull took a bouncing puck in front and knocks it in the net. Wolverines extend that lead, it's now 3-1. to one.
Eight seconds left to go. He will dump it into neutral ice. Five seconds left to go. Hentz gets the puck, sends it all the way in over the goal, and time is going to expire. The Wolverines have won it. The number seven ranked Michigan Wolverines with the upset at home over the number four Boston College Eagles in an exciting game here at Yost Ice Arena.